You're listening to Heart Food Podcast, Episode 8 with Halle Bay Ramdeen. Welcome to Heart Food Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Pardo, nutritional therapy practitioner and private chef. This is a show that tells you the truth about food, nutrition, your body, your body image, and your mind, all with a hefty dose of real talk. This show is meant to inspire you and make you feel more confident and comfortable in your own skin. Hi. So I was thinking, how many ways are there to say hi? Like, I keep wanting to say like, hey, y'all, like Paula Dean style, but there's going to be so many of these episodes and I'm going to have to come up quickly with a lot of different ways to say hi. And anyway, I'm so excited for you guys to hear this episode with my friend Hallie. It's so good and so just has so many good gems of wisdom in it that I know so many of you are going to resonate with. And I can't wait to get into it. But before that, let me just tell you a few things that I tell you almost every episode. We mentioned things in episodes that you can look back on or refer to, and they're all listed on the show notes of the episode, which can be found at ashleypardo.com. You just go to the blog section and you go to the specific episode and you'll find them there. If you have a question that you want to ask me that you want me to answer on the podcast, you can do that on by sending an email to heartfoodpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to follow me on Instagram, I'm at Ashley K. Pardo. I also send out a newsletter every week on Thursdays that many people tell me is the best newsletter that they receive. And I spend a lot of time and thought and energy for that newsletter in a really good way. And I really pour my heart and soul into it. And I really want you to read them because I write a lot of personal stuff and you definitely get more information that you than you would just being on my website or on Instagram. You get updates and hints about like what's coming up and stuff. So I really would love it if you could sign up. You can just go to ashleypardo.com again and you'll see a little space if you scroll down a little bit to sign up. And make sure also, I know I say it every week, but it's really important that we get a lot of downloads and subscriptions and reviews and ratings for this podcast on iTunes. I really want a lot of people to hear it. I have huge dreams for this podcast and iTunes really favors people who have a lot of ratings and reviews. And that's the only way that we can get exposure besides organic growth through word of mouth and people sharing it, which I know a lot of people have. You've written me and told me, thank you so much. Um, but make sure that you go ahead and do that. Now on to the episode. So I met Hallie through Boston University. We were getting our master's there in gastronomy, which is food studies in 2011, which seems like a lifetime ago. Um, it doesn't feel that way, but to think that it was six years ago is crazy. But I knew from the moment that I started hanging around Hallie that she was going to do big things. She's somebody you can tell who's on a mission who is confident in her ability, who is extremely talented as an artist and a writer. 
she's one of the most talented people I know in that realm. And it was an honor to speak to her and to see where she's gone and what she's doing. She's actually the food editor of thekitchen.com, which is an infinitely comprehensible uh, cooking resource that has any the answers to any kitchen question or cooking question that you might have from tutorials to videos to recipes to meal plans to how to grocery shop literally anything you can go check that out you can specifically look up Hallie's uh, articles that she's written Uh, she also has uh, a website where she blogs sometimes I'll put all of that in the show notes but we talk a lot about food we talk a lot about owning yourself and having power and it was just so good that whole day that after we talked I just felt amazing and just like my confidence level was boosted just from talking to her and feeling that energy I'm somebody who has a similar way of thinking as her where you think something and you want something and you make it your mission to make it happen But after hearing her say it and hearing her wisdom, I just felt really inspired and I hope you guys feel the same after you listen. Halle Bay Ramdeen is a writer, editor, and producer with expertise directing and creating data-informed, emotionally genuine lifestyle content for a wide range of readers. For Halle, food has always been a portal for a deeper understanding of the self, our community, and the intersection of what is desired and what is necessary. She's the food editor of The Kitchen, the number one cooking site for millennial women, an essayist, and a reluctant blogger. Hallie, I'm so excited to have you here with me today. I'm so happy to be here. So we met six years ago in the gastronomy program at Boston University. I can't even believe that it's been that long. I know. When you when you put a number around it, it, it puts it into like perspective that it's been that long since we were both there and how long we've left. I know. And it's crazy because that time was such an amazing time in my life, even though it was really hard just because Mm -hmm. of like, I had obviously never been to grad school before and it was (laughs) stressful and everything, but I have such like fond, amazing memories of that time and being around that community. And I love seeing like, like we were just talking about offline, um, where all of us have gone through, um, you know, through and after the program. So just tell us really quickly your backstory. So you're the food editor of The Kitchen, which is a huge site and (laughs) so amazing that, you know, that our paths or that your path brought you to that place. So tell us like how you got there, you know, how you became interested in food and just how you are where you are today. Um, so, you know, this is a story that I'm trying to figure out myself. Uh, my older brother said to me recently, and he isn't a person that I realized is as wise as he's become, but he said to me every day, you have to tell your story and you have to tell yourself your story. And so I've been trying to do that a little bit. And I have been trying to tell myself the story of how I became, you know, a food editor and, if I'm really honest with myself, it's something that I wanted to be from a very long time ago. Um, I always am telling the story of how I grew up around magazines and I grew up around storytelling and I grew up around the written word as a as a form of beauty. 
And um, I had always been a writer and I had always been someone that was looking at the big picture and, you know, what was the umbrella over things. And I had always been surrounded by all the magazines in my parents' house. And so I think that those things were seeds inside of me that didn't really get a chance to germinate until I found myself uh, post uh, undergrad with a degree in bio and art history, not really wanting to be an art historian, mm-hmm. not really wanting to, you know, like pursue medicine. Mm-hmm. And I had to figure out, you know, what were some true things about me in that period. And I think a lot of people who are in their like early to mid twenties, um, if you don't have a direct plan, you find yourself asking these sort of existential questions about like, what's important to me? Who am I? What do I want to do? Um, and that was around the time that I discovered food blogs. Mm-hmm. I would say, you know, like around, I don't know, maybe like 2006, 2007, that's when they really were starting to have a presence online. Yeah. And I remember reading Smitten Kitchen. Oh my God. My I remember, <laughs> right. I remember reading uh, 101 cookbooks with mm-hmm. Heidi. Yes. Um, and I remember, honestly, I remember reading The Kitchen. Oh I my read. God. Full circle. I know. It really is. And sometimes I, I like have to pinch myself, mm-hmm. but truly uh, I remember going to work every day. I was teaching biology because you know, you got to like pay your bills. Yeah. And <laughs> I remember like the first thing I would do every day was sign on to the kitchen and read through until I hit what was published yesterday. I mean, I was a, what you would call like a ferocious fan. Yes. Yeah, so you're site. like devouring everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I started to realize like, this is what I wanted to do. Um, I, I wanted to figure out like, how could I participate in telling stories that way? And so I started a blog and, um, it was called, and it still exists. It's concrete Magnolia. And it was a blog that I started with every intention of it being a sort of like creative partnership with my mom, who is from North Carolina, which is where the Magnolia part came from and the concrete me being from New York and just this exploration of everyday life. And for me, that had so much to do with food. And over time, I wrote that blog for three years, very consistently through graduate school, actually. I remember. Yeah. And it kind of became, um, this like public notebook to figure out some of the stories that I wanted to tell around food and what was important to me around food and what was beautiful about food. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when you do something that you're supposed to be doing, which for me in that moment was writing that blog, other opportunities open up to you. And so it gave me the courage to really self-identify as a writer. And if someone asked me who I was and what I did, uh, I felt comfortable saying I'm a writer. And, uh, I think that had a lot of power for me, yeah. just that proclamation. Mm-hmm. And it became like a catalyst for all these other opportunities. Um, and so, you know, like long story short from that realization and that confidence of being able to say I was a writer or a photographer, I got a lot of professional opportunities based off of that. And I started interning. I interned, um, at a digital media company in Boston, working as an editorial assistant and a food stylist. I interned at Bon Appetit magazine for a summer. I was like doing freelance writing and all of that felt really, really good when mm-hmm. I was doing that. And that was the sign that I was on the right path. And eventually, uh, you know, after graduation, I had 
it became very clear to me that I wanted to be a food editor. I wanted to tell stories around food and feed people. Um, and I enjoyed, you know, the writing and editorial process. And I ended up taking a job at Better Homes and Gardens and moved from Boston Mm -hmm. to Iowa, you know, that was like a bit of a culture shock. Um, but I learned everything. Yeah, it was amazing though. I learned everything, everything I really, you know, learned about the editing process and talking to people about food in in a way that was, um, genuine and honest. I learned there. Um, and then I, I made the switch, uh, to digital media um, and took a job at the kitchen as their food editor uh, just now two years ago. And that sort of wow. brings me to where I am right now and actually saying that to you and kind of like discussing the art makes me, um, I just feel that magic actually all over again. Yeah. And I'm getting chills as you're talking about, about this because I'm such a believer in following your path. And I'm a big fan of uh, Joseph Campbell, who says that, you know, I think a lot of us like, might strive for a path. And it's like, okay, I want to do this and this and this and this. But that wouldn't be our path, because we set it as we go, you know, interesting. So that's something that I think about. And then it's also what you just said is a big testament to I'm getting chills again, like just saying what you want. And like, just putting full power in it. And saying, yes, you know, tell yourself your story, you decide what you want. And saying I'm a writer is freaking hard. <laughs> you know what I mean? It it's, really it's, is It's really hard. And it's intimidating. <laughs> and it it's really but the power in saying it and having that like, self belief and that like proclamation saying I'm going to do this thing, like you said, opportunities are going to come to you that wouldn't have come otherwise which is so amazing. And I know you're kind of on the woo-woo side like I am. Um, <laughs> and, and I love that stuff, but it's, it's really true because once you identify in that way, and it's really about having the self-belief and choosing to feel a certain way before you yeah. actually get the official title or whatever yeah. it is, it's so powerful. And I really encourage people to do that because opportunities and people come into your life that wouldn't have come otherwise. Yeah. And I am a, um, a very, uh, adamant journaler. I've been like Mm. journaling consistently for, I would say like 20 years to be honest, which is terrifying in some sense, because then there's like 20 years worth of like emotional data on me. So I know, (laughs) I know I'm like, (laughs) if I die, what's going to happen? Yeah. I have a pact with my best friend. I'm like, what do you do if I die? She's like, burn the notebooks. I'm yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Oh my God. There's so much. Cause like, it's like, literally a, we have that fact. Yeah. Um, but I was flipping through, I just recently moved and I was flipping through one of my old notebooks from the early two thousands. And there's this entry and I honestly, I remember writing it, but there's been a lot of entries, but there was this, uh, just this like bold statement there that said, I want to be a magazine editor. Oh, wow. And so coming back to that, honestly, 10 years later and seeing that and having like really achieved that in my life makes me feel like the declaration was necessary for the action to have even occurred. Oh, 100%. I'm so passionate about this stuff because I'm like, I tell people all the time, like, you don't have to get the thing in order to feel the thing that you want, you know, and And that's that's a great 
contrast, like this, there is a difference between feeling it and having it. Yes. Because oftentimes if we have it, it, it kind of is the short end of the stick because then we don't end up feeling it. It's not like what we expected it to be if we don't feel it first. Yeah. I mean, desire is a great motivator. Yes. So (laughs) totally. And wanting, go ahead. Wanting something is what got me here. Like I wanted that so badly. And you declared yourself, you, you declared it for yourself and now look, look what's happened. It's really amazing. Um, do you do morning pages? I know, I think we had kind of talked about that at some point. Yeah, you know, I did, I have, and it's been like a practice and process for me, but you know, this, there are all these really beautiful rituals around writing. And I think that that's a great introduction to one ritual or practice that could be valuable to you. Mm -hmm. I have found that, um, the thing that I try to do with my writing and making it a consistent practice is not ignoring the muse. So, and this is something that my family has gotten really used to, but if I like, I, I have a physical feeling that like pushes me to write. Um, and so if it happens to me, I have to go write something or like take down notes so I can write later. Um, and I have spent too much time ignoring that in the past. Um, and know how that makes me feel when I don't write that for me, it's not so much of, you know, having to do it at a certain time every day. Um, but if, when the feeling happens, sitting down and writing, and I think by doing that writing every day, you know, has become a part of my practice because the muse shows up. Yes. And, and that's kind of a segue into kind of what I wanted to talk to you about next, which is like the intersection of like talent, inspiration, and motivation, mm-hmm. and kind of treat and, and creativity and how we nurture and respect, like you said, that muse that comes in because it's like it shows up unexpectedly. And then like you, I have I spent a huge part of my life ignoring that internal feeling. Cause I know exactly what you're talking about. It's palpable. Yeah. Is that the same thing for you? That feeling that comes in? Yeah. I mean, it honestly is this, it's a very distinct physical desire to say something mm-hmm. in the written form. And I think a part of that is what helps me self-identify as a writer without feeling any sort of qualms about that. Yeah. Um, knowing and recognizing that like physical feeling being very true. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I also try to acknowledge that when I show up and write that what I end up writing might not always be what I expected. Yes, totally. And so there is a degree of compassion that I've had to like cultivate over the years because I, I could be hard on myself. I would like show up to write something and I would reread it and I'd be like, what is this? I know. <laughs> this isn't what I <laughs> what wanted. Is this yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. But, but you have to like, you have to write the nonsense too. Yeah. And I think that is a part of the, uh, the thinking behind morning pages is sometimes you just empty your brain out. Mm-hmm. You have to write two pages before you even get to anything and everything you write can't be profound and everything you write can't be, you know, something that's going to get you a Pulitzer or something like that. But like there, sometimes I write complete nonsense and there's one sentence that I am absolutely stunned by. Yeah. 
And that would have been worth it. That is worth it. It, Totally. And it's really about having that like non-judgment for the work that we put out because it's really not about the end product, even though that's nice, you know, Mm -hmm. it's really about the process and the fact that you show up for yourself and kind of like we were talking about before that you nurture and respect that, that feeling that comes to you. And it's so true also that when we ignore it, it doesn't feel good, you know, and it like festers for me. It's like, oh, it feels like I don't even know how to describe that feeling, but it just does not. It feels foreign and weird and like just something icky is sitting inside of me when I don't express it. Yeah. You and know? it's a learned behavior. Yes, you know, I totally. think I think trying to figure out how to be honest about when you need to do something from your, for yourself and, and especially I'm, you know, in a creative space isn't necessarily natural for some people. It was not for me. Mm -hmm. I had to learn how to prioritize my creativity and, um, also just feel, find a way to feel comfortable about talking about it. Even this conversation that we're having right now is like a huge growth point for me because, Mm -hmm. um, creativity can sometimes feel like a commodity for, um, you know, fame or, you know, just like how it's being prized right now as, you know, an attribute. But for me, it's honestly, I, it's, it's a thing that I have to do to feel like myself. Yeah. And this act of like, being open about the value and role creativity plays in my life and like how I have to prioritize it is something that I'm newly comfortable discussing. Mm. And have you, what are some ways that you nurture and kind of protect that creativity that you feel? Well, I have found so much satisfaction in just writing for myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I used to wonder, uh, you know, if I'm just writing for myself, am I still a writer? You know, there, yeah. there was a point in my career where I felt like I wasn't publishing my work enough. Um, or, you know, the writing that I was doing was on behalf of, you know, brands that I've worked for. And I wasn't seeing myself in my writing. And that made me question whether I was a writer at all. Mm. Um, but I sort of just over time, and this comes again with like self-compassion, came to the realization that if I show up and write for myself in a journal, or when I keep a blog, which is something that I <laughs> have like a lot of reluctance around, mm-hmm. just, just because of, you know, my I don't have the time to give to it the way I would love to. Yeah. But does that still make me a writer? Like, am I still engaging in the process? And being able to say yes means that I'm doing enough for me to feel like I'm being creative and Mm -hmm. feeling creative is like my primary goal. So, yeah. Do you find that there's a difference in the way that you write? Like if you're writing for a brand or a publication versus when you write for yourself? Yes, I do. But I also think that, you know, I, I, I try and I have, and I'm very fortunate to have worked for brands that I really believe in. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's not difficult for me to bring myself to like a brand's voice. Um, because I've had that, you know, privilege of working for brands that I truly believe in. And that you're aligned with. Yeah. And I, and I, I really make it a point to find positions and opportunities that bring my 
my personal goals and my my personal values to the jobs that I work at. Mm. I don't want to be misaligned. I just I a job can't be something that I do from nine to five and then I turn into another person after yeah. the clock stops. I have yeah. to be the same person all day long. And yeah. so I have to go to work as me and write in some capacity as myself or tell a story in some capacity as myself um, and come home and do the same thing. And so that makes it both easy to find the right positions and very difficult. Yeah, because you really have to be selective and picky. You do. And honest. Yeah, with, like, and super honest, too, because yeah. it can be tempting to go for something that um, might be lucrative or whatever, but that isn't aligned, and it takes a lot of strength to mm-hmm. to do that, you know, because, um, like, you spend one-third of your life there, you know, so you got to yeah. make sure <laughs> that it's that it's something that's really, that's really for you and, yes, that, exactly. and that you can grow with. Um Something that I feel often, and I wonder if you feel it. Have you ever heard of um, Stephen Pressfield's work? The work. No, I'm not familiar. Oh my gosh, he's incredible, and he writes about the process of creativity and writing, and he talks about resistance, mm. and that's something that I feel every day. Whether it's like, you know, I talk about a, a lot about my movement practice and the fact that every day I forget how it makes me feel. Like I wake up and I'm like, Oh, got to do this thing again. You know? And I just feel that. And even though I know intellectually that like, it's going to make me feel good after mm-hmm. I do it, I feel amazing. Even after like writing, cause I do love to write as well. Mm-hmm. I always kind of feel that resistance, that voice that says like, what are you doing? It would be so much easier if you just didn't do this or if you just yeah. laid on the couch and I, I do the stuff anyway, you know, after years of being like victim to that voice and letting mm-hmm. it overpower me. Now I'm in a place where I can still feel it, but I, um, I override it and I'm just like, you're there. I'm going to go above you and I'm going to do this anyway because I need to. So I'm wondering if you feel that resistance and like, Stephen Pressfield says that it's not only with writing, it's like doing our work that we need to do in this world that does make us feel better, but no matter what, that resistance is going to be there. And I'm wondering if you have experienced that. Oh my gosh, absolutely. Oh my gosh, yeah. I used to wear the badge of busy, uh-huh. be in the cult of easy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was, I did not realize it, but I was looking for so many ways to like avoid myself, yes. you know, and the oh things God. that I had to do, even if it was something simple as like, go to the grocery store. Or... Oh I know, I know what you mean. Yes. You go to the grocery store, you will have the eggs. And if you have the eggs, you're going to have the breakfast that will make you feel better. Exactly. During the rest of the day. Yep. Or like, um, yes, it's dark outside, but you really should go to yoga because you know how yoga makes you feel at the end of the day, those sorts of things. But it's very easy to say, you know, oh, I'm busy, I'm busy. And, you know, or you're like, oh, but that's not really the easiest way to do this. And I think about that a lot, even in my my job, because, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, the primary goal of my job as a food editor of the kitchen is to help people feed their family. Mm -hmm. That's the number one thing I do. And there's so many ways to feed your family. And cooking is just one of the ways. Yeah. Um, 
but it's very easy for us um, as just people disseminating information about cooking and food to say like, you're so busy. This is why you need this shortcut without getting to the emotional reason behind that. Yeah. Um, And the same thing with like, you know, easy dinners or, you know, 30 minute meals. It's like, those are really valuable ways to tell people, you know, that this recipe is going to be useful for them or this strategy or whatever. But it's not valuable if we do not identify and talk about the reasons you might need that in the first place. And so before I could really write and tell valuable stories to our readers about like a 30 minute meal or like the easiest way to get your kids to eat X, Y, and Z. I had to really tap into the reasons why I would like that or like why people in my life would like that. And that, that is why I really talk about the work that I do being emotionally driven mm-hmm. because that adds substance to everything. Um, and it adds substance to understanding my own choices, but also understanding why, you know, the readers that I try to speak to so genuinely might, might need what they need as well. Um, so resistance shows up everywhere, but I have, I've been trying to harness it in some ways. Mm-hmm. It's really <laughs> um, hard. It's so hard, but I, I, um, honestly, I just turned 30. Well, that's a lie. I turned 30 last year. I'm going to turn 31 soon here, but, mm-hmm. um, it has been a year of lessons and, Really, one of the lessons was, you know, it's okay to be uncomfortable. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Totally. Like you, you can be uncomfortable. And, and it's okay. Like, you'll and survive. it's okay. Yeah, you're fine. Yeah. And I think our, our definition of uncomfortable in the Western world is vastly different from what it would be like elsewhere. Yes. And oh my God. accepting and acknowledging that has been really um, useful. And just not tolerating but all just like sitting with discomfort and knowing that it's not the end of the world. Yes. I think that that's probably the most important thing that we can realize, you know, because as you were talking about, you know, coming up with these things for your readers and everything, it's really about having self-awareness and about looking at why you do the things that you do, what you prioritize, what you're spending your time doing. And, That's been, as you were talking about the discomfort, that's been my biggest lesson these past like three or four years. Definitely like in the last three, I deliberately try to put myself into uncomfortable situations because I know they're going to help me grow. And I think it's so important because without them, you don't really grow into the person that you could be. And I think it's about just continuously exposing yourself to them. I mean, we're not talking like extreme, uncomfortable. We're talking about like writing when you don't feel liking it, when you don't feel like it, going to that yoga class, maybe cooking something healthy for yourself when you want to go get fast food or whatever. Like those little things, you, you realize that like, okay, I did this thing and it really wasn't that bad. Like I didn't die. So <laughs> now... I can go do this other thing, you know? Exactly. Yeah. I think that's great to really bring up what we mean when we say like discomfort and that it is not, you know, discomfort in an overt physical sense. Or, I mean, I, I think that that might not be the case so much in the emotional sense because you do, you can experience emotional discomfort in so many ways. Yes. But, um, I, I mean, 
putting yourself in those situations makes you stronger and braver. Yes. And um, those are, I mean, when you learn how to be brave, you, you, you're working that muscle, right? It gets stronger. Yes. Yep. So the next time you have to be brave and probably a more like detrimental situation, at least your body holds that memory. And you might be able to show up a little bit better than you wouldn't, you would have been, you know, you would not have been able to otherwise. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the only, or one of the best ways that we can find out how strong and brave we really are, because we really don't have to pull out those tools until things happen. And then you're like, whoa, now I'm, you know, I survived that other thing. Now I can survive this thing. And it, it will, and it might be uncomfortable through the process, but that's why I'm such a fan of having a growth mindset. And I know you have this as well, where we think like you can either have, this is Carol Dweck's work and her book mindset, where she talks about like, you can either have a fixed mindset where you're like, this is how things are always going to be. I just don't do that thing. And I'm just going to be like this for life. And then a growth mindset is having that openness to say like, okay, this is how I might be today, but I have the opportunity to change myself. I can be different. I can try new things. I can survive uncomfortable Mm -hmm. situations and I can beat resistance and all those things. So have you found that having a growth mindset, I know that you have one, just not even with asking (laughs) you, (laughs) um, do you find that having that mentality has created better opportunities and success for you? Yeah, definitely. Um, this year, you know, turning 30 and carrying over all of those sort of like cultural baggage of what 30 means mm-hmm. has been a sort of blessing in disguise. Um, because, um, it has forced me to explore my edges. Um, and you know, I have sort of walked the perimeter of myself and gone further out than I ever knew existed. But I have come back to sort of this like equilibrium in the middle, bringing back like whatever gifts and lessons I've learned along those edges. Mm -hmm. Um, and that has been how I've grown. And I, any growth that I've experienced over like the last, you know, three to five years has been entirely emotional. Mm. Um, and it has been like a deepening and a softening and, um, really prioritizing emotional intelligence over just intellectualism. Yes. Uh, and being okay again with just admitting that and, and wanting to sort of like talk about that because honestly, the alternative feels so good when you come from this tight ball of really like leading with, you know, intellectualism, it's very easy to retreat into that. That's, that's kind of what I was doing and all the work that I had to do in my turning 30. And a lot of it was forced, uh, this year, uh, two years ago, I, we found out that my mom had a stage four breast cancer and nothing will jumpstart you into dealing with your shit. Like, someone you love. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, yeah. Being put, exactly. Like you just cannot survive that unless you start doing something about it. Yeah. Um, and that was, uh, it forced my hand in the most beautiful way. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's where the growth has come from for me. It did, it did not start, um, 
you know, from a place of beauty. It started from a place of fear. Yeah. Um, and I realized like I had to do something. I had to figure out how to be brave for myself and my family and for my mama while this whole thing was happening. And, you know, but once you get a taste of that, of what it feels like to sort of, sort of sink into yourself and like acknowledge your feelings and all that stuff, you want more. Yeah. And that's what I mean by the alternative being so sweet. And so, um, The growth for me has been all about those edges and what can I bring back from, you know, what I've discovered. And that's such a beautiful way that you put it, like discovering the perimeter of yourself and softening and then coming back and softening and coming back again. And it's, you know, I can't imagine what you went through learning about that from your mom and she's doing okay right now. Oh yeah. She's okay. thriving. Yeah, that's, definitely. Oh wow. See, that's like, <laughs> and that's such a beautiful story. And like you said, nothing will jolt you to like the present and just being like, okay, what can we do? And, and bringing about that strength and learning of, of something like that. And that's incredible that she's doing okay. And that, you know, you were able to be there with her throughout those things. And I feel like, struggle, whatever struggle it it might be, always brings, I know for my personal struggles as well, it's always brought me to be a more beautiful person. Yes. Always. And yeah. in the midst of it, it, you're never like, you never want it. You know, it's like, no. it's really no. hard to see like, oh, in two years, I'm going to be a beautiful person because of this thing right. that really sucks. But, but in retrospect, and as I look back on my life, all the struggle that I've gone through has made me a more beautiful person. On the inside, it's made me more compassionate. And because of that, I am, you know, I'm thankful, not, I don't want to say thankful exactly, but I'm glad things went the way that they did, because then I would have missed out on this opportunity to be a more emotionally sensitive person, a more emotionally intelligent person. Um, So I just think it's really important. Whenever people are going through some shit, I'm like, just wait. (laughs) I know, I know. You know? (laughs) The same thing. There are a lot of people around me right now that are kind of doing their work. Yes. And, um, oh gosh, but it's so amazing to like see, you know, a family member or friend do the work and sort of come out on the other side. I mean, it is the most amazing thing to see a person revealed. Like I just cannot get enough of, you know, like seeing a friend do the work and come through and like just this blossoming of self and how that just manifests in all the decisions that they make in their life. And I think that there's no rushing it. Because some people get to the work on their own time and sometimes they're jump started. I certainly did not have any intentions of doing the work (laughs) when, you know, we found out about my mom's diagnosis, Mm -hmm. but like that was, that forced my hand. And I also think what happens is you start to recognize that in your community. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like we saw it in each other that was happening. You know, I have been such an, like, huge fan of your work and also the transformation that you've gone through in your career. And, and and I, I could see it. I was like, Oh my goodness, like there's something here. Like we are on similar paths and like, it's just that mirroring of the work, like made me feel like I was on the right path, you know, like seeing the people in your life do it 
is, you know, it's encouraging. And I think it has such a beautiful ripple effect and it's happening to people, you know, my day to day life. And sometimes I feel like, you know, some people do the work before you so they can be the ambassadors and you get to the work before other people so you can be their ambassadors. And it's such a sharing, giving way of, you know, really interacting with your community mm-hmm. that I did not even know existed like three years ago. I know. And, and it's, and it's like, I, I've been in it for, for a long time. And I, I, I always think my soul is like 80 years old. Like mm-hmm. I'm a total grandma. I've always felt like that. So I've always felt like I've known something that other people haven't because most people aren't into this. You know what I mean? I would say for like to have that self-awareness because it's hard, you know? Yeah. And, and it's much easier to just kind of like live on the surface and just be like, la, 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 everything is fine. But it's like those memes that are like what you think a <laughs> spiritual awakening looks like. And it's Mm -hmm. like this person in a field with flowers. And then on the bottom, it's like what it really looks like. It's this person that's been like electrocuted or something, you know? And and it's really really true. Yeah. And, and the thing is that it is hard, but the depth that you create in your life and that empowerment that you feel to not only like know that you're a strong person, but then also have like an idea of what you're supposed to do in this world is just crazy. And I encourage it for everyone to kind of, and this is the work that I'm trying to do, like with the podcast and with my business is to just really try to awaken people to become aware of the fact that there can be another way. And you can really shift your perspective to view situations as growth moments, you know, and it's true that you can't rush people because... I can't, you know, I've tried, I used to try to do that. Like, Hey, read this book. You're going to be a different person or, Hey, do this thing or whatever. But when people don't want to hear it, they don't want to hear it. And it's often like in your case, situations that jolt you, or maybe you're just like sick of feeling a certain way, but I really encourage everyone to, to try to do this and become self-aware so that they can have like a richer experience in their lives because it feels good you know, after the fact. (laughs) And it's, and it's never like, this is something I talk about with my yoga teacher and something that I've experienced in my own life that like, you never get to a place where like, you're there or you arrive or everything is okay. It's like a constant remembering and then forgetting, remembering and then forgetting and then going in it and out of it, like constantly. And then just being like the observer and just the vehicle for growth. I don't know. If that oh makes my goodness. Sense. That makes so much sense. And, uh, one thing that, uh, you know, I've done this year is, uh, really introduced, uh, a meditation practice mm-hmm. and a gratitude practice. Yes. Um, but the meditation in particular has been just, uh, just life changing for me. And I don't say that lightly. Yeah. Um, because I, you know, I have a very demanding job and as a person who does write as a form of expression, my brain is always on and firing at all cylinders. And sometimes that is like, it's too much. Yeah. And, (laughs) um, I, I didn't have a way to not feel that way. And then, 
And I was introduced by a friend of mine at work um, to the seven minute meditation. Mm. And the gist of it is to become a witness to your own breathing. Yeah. And that concept alone was like a revelation. Exactly. That like, you're just a witness. You don't have to change it. You don't, you don't have, have to judge to ch- it. You don't have oh. to get involved in the story. You're just no. there chilling. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and it was just, but it was brilliant because yes. when seven minutes later, I was like, I am very calm right yeah, now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, and meditation but, is another thing that we often don't feel like doing, you know, but that we gives, don't feel like doing. And then we're like, oh, it's a waste of time. But it really does bring no, another I mean, level to, to your life. It, in peace. I mean, in peace. immediate peace. Immediate. immediate. Even just one minute sometimes. Like sometimes yeah. I'm feeling super frazzled. I mean, this still happens to me where I like have my freakouts and I feel frazzled. But even just taking one breath, just being like, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm back to it. You know, I forgot, but now I'm back, you know. Right. So it's such yeah. a great tool. And I really encourage yeah. people to do um, all of that. So that was an I, awesome. Okay, go ahead. I loved what you said, though, about like a constant remembering and a yes. constant forgetting. Yes. That really is how all of this goes. I mean, we could get off the phone right now and then I could be like, hmm, why is everything the worst ever? You I know. know. <laughs> exactly. It, it, yes. Totally. Totally. But that, yeah, go ahead. we're building up the memory that it isn't. Yeah. So we're more likely to remember that it isn't and, you know, remember the tools that we have. Exactly. To, you know, use when we start to feel the opposite way. So. Exactly. Because I thought, like, when I started, like, my journey or whatever, I thought that, and I kind of talk about this sometimes, I thought that I would, like, become this Buddha person that, like, never felt a shitty thought, that never was negative. Because those, you know, I can be a very joyful person, but then I've also had periods in my life where I've been, like, really super depressed, and I still deal with anxiety and all of that. Um, but... I thought that I would just never feel those things again. I'm like, I'm just going to like be enlightened and like be this person who just like emanates like sunshine from her face every day. But that's so, that's almost like spiritual bypassing. You know what I mean? Mm. But but once I realized that those things are just part of it and that it's really about the everyday forgetting and coming back, forgetting and then I don't have to judge myself for having those days where I'm like, why does everything just suck today? Right. And, you know, it's just having that non-judgment about life and about um, the fact that you're just going to forget sometimes and that's okay. Like I'll probably freak out today at some point, you know, but then I'll breathe and I'll remember to just come back. And I think that's so important because then people judge themselves for having these like negative thoughts sometimes, but you can remember to always bring yourself back. Yeah. And I think that that's what it's really about, you know. And and the discovery is always sweet. Yes, always, always. When you remember, it's like, oh, okay, that's all I had to do. I just had to take mm-hmm. a breath. Um, <laughs> so something we were talking about before was the fact that, and this kind of goes along with having that richer understanding of life, is the fact that you, I think even when we were in our gastronomy program, we work together sometimes and I always saw this thing in you where you really appreciated like really simple things like the beauty of like one apple mm. or <laughs> a lemon 
or like, and, and that's kind of like how I walk through the world. I feel like I'm like five years yeah. old sometimes. I'm like, ooh, look at this plant and look at this flower. I'm like so happy right now. And like in the grocery store, forget it. Like if it's like seasonality and I'm like at a farmer's market, I'm like, ooh, look at these like plums or these figs. Like I get so excited and like more than a normal person would. And I feel like you have that quality too. And I really try to, you know, cultivate that appreciation for the beauty in everyday life. And I really try to create that in the space that I live too, to have those reminders of beauty around me. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about that role that the everyday beauty plays in your life? And if you try to appreciate that every day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I was very fortunate to be raised um, in an environment and in a conversation where beauty was very important. And I don't mean um, beauty, you know, like, uh, you know, like physical beauty in the mm -hmm. sense of, you know, this is how you look or that, you know, this is what that looks like. But like, beauty that makes you feel a certain kind of way like <clears throat> my mom is just she's a very special person and in so many ways but one of the things that I find most special about her is her ability to just like be entirely like just entranced by a thing because of how it makes her feel yeah and so that's how she like you know, decorated our house. That's how she decided what to feed us. It's how she decided, you know, what clothing, you know, we wore. It was just always a part of the discussion that like, this is beautiful because it makes me feel this way. Mm. And so I've always associated beauty um, with uh, feelings. And, you know, when I look at a lemon, I am remembering the sharpness and the way that the oil leaves traces of its scent on my fingertips and how it can make anything I cooked that much better. And that to me is a beautiful thing. And so when I write about a lemon or take a photograph of a lemon, I am trying to find that memory mm -hmm. in, you know, the image or in the words that I'm using. Um, and it has made me a very particular writer and a very specific sort of photographer because I'm seeking to reveal the thing I feel in the beauty of, you know, whatever I'm talking about. Wow. Um, and I find that a lot in, you know, these singularities because I do feel like small moments are very infinite for me and expansive and food has always been such a conduit for getting into those moments. Um, and so you know, in my own work, in my personal work that I do, this is like outside of my work at kitchen or, you know, <clears throat> when I write about a food or an ingredient or a memory, it's because I'm trying to find that singularity and trace, you know, the feeling back to the moment of beauty. Yes. And it's, and it's crazy too, because like you said, one tiny thing can represent a lifetime of memory and nostalgia yeah and can evoke all these crazy emotions and that's why food is so much deeper than like just a piece of whatever it is you know and that's yeah. why we have these emotional attachments to food and this is definitely something that like that comes across in your work like I was oh, looking at you. your blog earlier 
I had always read it, um, the Concrete Magnolia blog, and I was looking at it yesterday, and I'm like, these like you have photos of like these radishes that is be- <laughs> that's beautiful, like with the black Thank background. You. It just you can feel the beauty, and that's why food is so powerful. Because I'm a fan of anything that will bring us back to nostalgia, whether it's like music or smells or mm-hmm. whatever it is. But I think food is the most powerful mechanism. Like the other day, my mom made this flan and my boyfriend hadn't had his grandma's flan in forever. And he was having like an extreme emotional reaction. (gasps) Oh, that's so beautiful. To eating the flan. He's like, it reminds me of my grandmother. (laughs) I'm like, what's wrong with you? What's happening? Like why, (laughs) you know, I didn't realize that that's what what was happening to him. And he's Mm -hmm. like, it tastes like my grandma's flan. I haven't had it in since she died like 10 years ago or whatever. And it was crazy. I mean, they were both like Cuban style flans, but Mm -hmm. he was having this like visceral emotional reaction towards this food. And every time my mom makes it, it's like this big thing that can bring him back to, like I said, this, this, yeah, it is. And this, this thing that is the culmination of so many memories and it, like magnifies them to just one one thing in one spot that represents so much more. And like for people, like I was telling you before, a lot of my audience are people that have struggled with food or do struggle with food. Mm-hmm. And I definitely used to for most of my life. And that's why our pull to use food as a source of comfort, as a source of um, avoidance, or as a drug sometimes is really so much more than just like this thing tastes sweet and it's good, you know, or delicious. So what can you say about that? And it's such a loaded question. (laughs) No, it actually, honestly, like it makes me think of a journey that I've pretty much been on for like the last two years where, you know, my original push into food and how I sort of came to food and writing about food was because I was seeking identity through food. Mm -hmm. And I came, you know, I come from this very rich, uh, intermingled, like, um, blend of cultures. My dad is, uh, you know, West Indian. He's Jamaican of East Indian descent. My mother is black American from the South, but 100% a child of the seventies. And I grew up eating such a diverse intersection of foods. I, this, you know, I always think to myself, like, I always ask this question, you know, can a family create their own food culture? Because I am 100% certain that there was a very unique food culture happening in my house. I mean, so it was very easy for me to, um, you know, seek self in food and define self through food, because so much of my identity was presented to me and passed on to me through the foods that I grew up eating. Um, But the foods that you grew up eating, may not always be the foods that you need to eat to be well. Oh God. Yes. And totally. I, that was like a reckoning that I sort of had to deal with over the past two years. Uh huh. Um, and then, and the foods that I grew up eating were not unhealthy by any means, mm-hmm. but they weren't, you know, the, it's not the food that I need to eat to be well, um, all the time, you know, like consistently, what's the sort of like large format of my eating habits that could not be determined by, you know, eating to be who I am or who I told I was, you know, mm-hmm. eating, eating from my heritage. 
But like two things happened to me. One, I realized that the further I got back in my, you know, cultural heritage, the more evidence that the food of, you know, the two cultures that I come from has, it's rich in health and wellness. And that, um, that if you go far enough, and if you explore it with a certain expectation that you can find the food of your people um, to feed you the way that you need to be fed. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, like on my father's side, like eating coconut oil and cooking with ghee and a lot of spices and curry and heat, that is a tradition that I grew up eating, but that that's something that I carry into my day-to-day cooking and still makes me feel like myself, but it's in a way that is true to who I am right in this moment. Wow. And not just participating in like the prepackaged identity around certain cultures and certain foods. It's that is like an organic representation and the same, you know, with my mom, but all of that now is married with like a very low carb sort of ketogenic style diet, which yeah. is what, you know, I primarily follow and that I, I'm being fed the way I need to be fed from a nutritional standpoint, but also from an emotional standpoint, because uh, there's just no leaving the food of my past and people away from how I cook today, but there's also no getting away from needing to be well and having to make the right nutritional choices for that. Totally. And it's about like creating nuance within yes, what you grew up with, you know, because yes. that's something, and I actually had that um, in my notes to talk to you about is like, how do we blend what we know works for us? with the emotional attachments and the significance that certain foods have. And like you, these past, I mean, I think I've talked to you about it before, but like the past um, maybe four or five years, I've completely changed the way that I've eaten completely. I used to like, especially when you knew me, I was like the baker girl. You know, the baker, and I think you were uh, doing a lot of like plant-based eating too. I yes, think I totally. I was a, I was vegan. Where right, I like told right. my, but I was still like eating cheese once a week in my cheese class, you know. <laughs> so I was like, quote unquote, vegan uh, hedonism or, class. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I'd wake up at like three in the morning because I'd try like twelve blue cheeses with wine. It was not oh like gosh. that wasn't fun, but um, and it was really like five years ago. It was really hard for me to let go of having that identity or eating certain foods. Because there's just certain foods that, whether they were tied to the way that I grew up or whether I, like, inflicted these foods upon me, like, I loved baking and I loved sharing, you know, my baked goods with people. Um, And once I kind of realized, like, well, if I don't eat these things, then I feel a lot better. Like, not just a little bit better, but, like, I have this brand new life because of it. Um it was really hard for me and also for the people around me, you know, to, to go from being somebody who would eat everything and would participate and try stuff to being like this fun girl, you know, to somebody who had to say no sometimes, who wouldn't bring these things all the time, who wouldn't participate. It was like, I definitely went through a phase where I was really, really upset about it. And it was crazy. Like now it's been years that I'm super comfortable and I empower people to live their truth out and eat foods that make them feel awesome. But it was so much harder than I expected because of those emotional ties. And because I had created, I had created my own identity around being 
and like thrived off of that identity. And then to, to have it taken away from me because of food was shocking. And I had never experienced something like that before at all. So it's so interesting what you were saying with like, you can create your own blend and you can create your own style that is yours that still is reminiscent and has little touches of what you grew up with and what's important to you, you know? Absolutely. And, um, you know, really making my nutritional choices based on the science and not prepackaged protocols has been a turning point for me. So, um, you know, we, I did like a whole 30 and it was Mm -hmm. for work and there's so much that's great about whole 30 and there was so much about it that did not work for me. Mm, Um, I'm curious to hear. Uh, it was just a little, there was dogma in it that I found, uh, just like unsettling. Mm -hmm. Uh, And some of it, I, I think that a lot of it is based on science, but at that point for me, I might as well just make choices based on the science then, yeah, not the, the protocol that's explaining the science to me. And I'm very fortunate to be science literate enough to do that. Yes. Um, I know that not everyone is because that's just not their background, but I come from a science background, so I have that ability. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, or, or just even, you know, giving myself, identifying myself with a style of eating has always been detrimental. Yes. You know, I do not like subscribing to the titles of being a vegetarian, even though I did not eat meat for a number of years. I don't want to be, you know, paleo, even though 99% of what I eat is that way. You know, that kind of, I don't want the labels because then they mean that I have to adhere to something. Yes. But, you know, knowing that, you know, some of the science behind a ketogenic diet works for my physiology means that I can take that and apply it to my life, but also there's some fluidity there because mm-hmm. I'm not beholden to the the dogma or the label. Exactly. And that's, it's a mind game. It is. It's constant, <laughs> for there's sure. It's a total mind game by saying that, mm-hmm. but it's what works for me. Exactly. And uh, that's really what I'm after. I'm like, what's going to work for me? Because that's, that's who I'm trying to take care of in that situation. Yeah, and only you know. Like you only, you know, how, like we can look at the science and the science is super beneficial. I'm a really big fan of looking at that, but I think ultimately what should govern our food choices is how they feel to us, you know? And that's, and that's why I'll never tell anybody, like, of course there are certain foods that are awesome for everyone, but I think there's so much power you know, I used to be, I used to label myself as paleo and vegan and all these different things, but that creates, like you said, this dogma and it just doesn't feel good. So now I'm like, you know what, I'm going to eat what makes me feel good today. And I have a personalized way of eating that I have created for myself because I've done that experimentation to know what works. And it's just based on me. Like, I don't know if I'll ever do, I've done a bunch of Whole30s in the past, but like you said, I'm not sure that I'll ever do a whole one again. I mean, it is pretty much how I eat for the most part mm-hmm. Yeah, with little things mixed in here and there, like when it's worth it, if I'm out, you know, if I'm around special people or whatever, 
but it's really something like I can, I think that it's a powerful tool for pe- for people to use, like maybe at the beginning of their journey, mm-hmm. if they're trying to feel better, but then through that, they can create a diet that, that works for yeah. them. And yeah. I think a lot of people get wrapped up in the rules and it, it can be very dogmatic, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm a super big fan of it. Like I said, for people, if they're coming from eating like the standard American diet Mm -hmm. to know, and they're not feeling good. They're like, well, I'm feeling like shit. I don't really know what's making me feel like shit. Then it's an amazing tool, but to use it as something that can like elevate your sense of self-worth or whatever. Like I see a lot of people do. It's just, that kind of makes me cringe. You know, you're really, people are really missing the point of doing this thing. Um, And I think it's so important to be empowered enough to say like, this works for me and and I'm also open to changing and having that fluidity because what might work today might not work tomorrow and then that comes back again to not like identifying with a certain way of eating or being and just yes. being open to to certain things and then also having the strength sometimes like this is something I've dealt with too is like the social factor Yes, that's massive. It's huge. And and I feel like that's why people have a hard time honoring themselves through what they eat. Because it's true. And this is something that I realized for myself, like when we were in grad school, that it's true that like healthy foods or not, not even healthy foods, but certain foods make me feel a certain way. And there are ways that I'm unwilling to feel on certain days. And... I know a lot of people feel that for themselves, but they're unwilling to say no to people around them, to be open with people about how they feel and stuff. And that social factor is big. Like once you change your diet and you tell somebody close to you that you can't eat or you won't eat a certain thing that they're making, I mean, few worse things can happen to people sometimes. You know what I mean? You think that like, I don't know. You just told them this really horrible thing. (laughs) I mean, it's crazy how people get offended by that. Um, And I've really learned to be compassionate towards that too, because I can understand and I've been through it many times, but I feel like you're in when you're faced with those situations, you're either honoring yourself or you're choosing to honor the other person, you know? Yes. Yeah. So there there's a way to be graceful and totally. unapologetic. Totally. And you can be kind and polite. Like you don't have to be mm-hmm. an asshole about it. You know, mm-hmm. you can be really kind. Is that something that you've kind of experienced? Yes, absolutely. Um, just sort of like just being honest about like the way in which I'm eating has, has been necessary. And, you know, being a person who does work in food, yes. um, that puts me in all sorts of interesting situations oh where, you know, I have to do the same thing. I have to negotiate how I want to feel based on, you know, certain foods, um, consuming certain foods. <clears throat> and uh, for the most part, I don't want to feel badly. Yeah, so. right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't eat the foods that I know make me feel poorly. Yeah. Um, and sometimes that can make other people feel left out yes. in you know, maybe the food that's being consumed or the food that they've prepared. But I find that if I can be honest and transparent from the beginning, good people understand and, and good people endeavor to understand. Totally. Um, And, and and that's honestly, um, not that, you know, sharing your food choices should help you 
determine like who are the right people to have around you, but it certainly is a magnifying glass about around, you know, for who's supportive because, you know, we're not making choices about what we consume to make life difficult for someone else. No, we're doing it because we want to feel good. Exactly. And you know, the people who love and care about you want you to feel good as well. And so, um, however they come to terms with it, eventually they will end up being supportive. And so I found, you know, that for the most part, like the people that I love and the people that love me back don't care. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm eating or they support me and they ask questions about it. Um, and the people that maybe make a fuss about it aren't really, you know, my people. So exactly. And it's a great way to gauge too. You know, sometimes it's like, why do you, why are you caring so much about this? This isn't your body. This is my choice. And I'm curious how it's, because like you said, working for a food public, an online food publication, have you found yourself in situations where, I don't know, there's a lot of foods around that don't work for you and you've had to say like, Hey, yeah, I have. Um, and you know, because food has become so diverse in, in terms of like dietary strategies over the mm-hmm. last few years, it's been, it hasn't been too difficult to navigate because there's so many expectations around it. I mean, for as many jokes as you'll see about, you know, gluten free, the fact is, it's happening. People don't eat a lot of gluten the way that they might, you know, have before. And so finding options that are lower in gluten or don't have any have been easier and no one is really batting an eyelash when you tell them that they're not doing that. But I really like the ability to not have to label myself as, as, you know, what, as a person defined by an eating style, because even though I follow for the most part, um, like a keto style protocol, I make decisions all the time to eat like that cookie. Yeah. Uh, but I, I get to choose that, you know, exactly. and it's like, a, you know, it's a negotiation with like, you know, the situation I'm in and whether it's worth it for me. And I would say like 99% of the time it's not. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, when it's worth it, it's good and it's great. And I don't regret it. Um, I talk about this a lot with my dad and we talk about like food as celebration. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I have learned how to cook a lot of the food that my father grew up eating. So I, you know, a lot of like West Indian cooking, and a lot of East Indian cooking. And one of the things we make a lot when it's time to celebrate something is curry goat. And mm-hmm. it's this like sort of elaborate process. And I, I just love the ritual of making that dish. Um, it makes me feel so close to my dad and my family on that side. But it was it's not something we eat all the time. We maybe eat it like four times a year because we only yeah. eat it when there's something to celebrate, you know, when everyone is together or, you know, it's someone's, you know, birthday or whatever. But um, leaving those special occasion foods to special occasions makes eating them, you know, so much easier. I don't have to negotiate that. Like I know what's happening and I know why I'm eating it and I know what it's going to do for me when I eat it on an emotional level. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, you know, having to navigate certain food situations, um, it's just, is it, will it be valuable for me to eat this in this moment? If I'm just at, you know, like a press event and somebody has a tray of cookies, absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but totally you true. know, if I'm like, baking Christmas cookies with my best friend's baby. Absolutely. And we're, we're eating this cookie. Like, hell yeah. 
and that's what it is. It's like, I just feel more equipped to negotiate the situations that I find myself in with food choices than I've ever been able to in the past. Yeah. And it's really just about that navigation of the everyday, like, is this worth it? How is this going to make me feel? Is it really that good? And what are the emotions involved? And it's like a moment to moment decision day to day. You know what I mean? Instead of having these rules, I can't eat the cookie. Should I have it? It's like, come back to the moment. Is this worth it? What does this mean to me? Like, for example, I don't really, I I follow for the most part paleo diet, even though I'm not labeling it that, but that is the way that makes me feel um, amazing. And I don't eat a lot of cheese really, but a few weeks ago I had my friends over and I made like this gluten-free lasagna that was so good. And I had like eight friends here. And normally that isn't something I would eat because it has like tons of cheese and it's, it just wouldn't sit well in my stomach. But that day I made it and it was like my eight best friends and, you know, all of us just sitting around together and it was just amazing. I'm like, this is freaking worth it to, to eat this. It wasn't even like a thought in my brain to, Mm -hmm. to not enjoy it. You know what I mean? Yes. And we had like these cupcakes afterwards and I had wine and then more cheese. And it's like, I didn't even <laughs> feel, yeah, that was all the wine that, that made me, that had me do that. And it was also worth it in the moment. I'm like, I'm having so much fun. And then the next day, like I didn't feel as bad physically, you know, because yeah. I feel like this, if we add stress to it and that worry, it makes a, it gives us like this physiological response sometimes. Mm-hmm you know, and it makes it, makes us feel worse. Absolutely. Like psychosomatic reactions to food. It's totally real. It's totally real. So I'm, but you don't do that every Friday too, right? Like you reserve that meal for the moment. And I just think that's so important. Exactly. Like it doesn't happen often. And at that moment I chose that it was worth it. And that makes it more special too. The fact that it doesn't happen often And obviously I see people all the time and I connect with them, but having that connection with food is really amazing. And it becomes that much more special when that food that doesn't make me feel awesome, like pretty much now, if I eat something that doesn't make me feel great, it's always with other people. (laughs) Always. Yeah. And um, just because that social factor adds so much more to it when like in my dieting days, eating something that didn't make me feel great would always happen alone. Oh and, yeah. And hiding yeah. and cause I would feel shame and guilt. Now everything mm-hmm. happens out in the open around people. And I really think that that's a testament, like you were saying with the celebration to heal people, healing their relationships with food and just coming to a place of comfort and empowerment where you can make choices that you want that come from you, that you dictate, that you've created and that you feel comfortable with. Absolutely. And then, you know, because you're in the habit of eating how you need to eat 90% of the time, the next day you go back to the way that you need to eat. Exactly. And exactly. I have found that to be like the most enlightening thing Yes, is that, you know, tomorrow is like not a continuation of that one meal last night. No. And, and, and so many people, I experienced this too, that you continue it for a long time because of the way you're beating yourself up about it, because like some potential shame that you might feel. 
but it's like loving it in the moment and like soaking up like a sponge every ounce of fun and connection and freaking enjoying the hell out of whatever you're eating but then moving on the next day and being like I'm committed to this other thing that makes me feel awesome and it is enlightening to know that like I don't have to continue this streak of not feeling awesome I can just have my way of eating filled with worth it blips of things that might not work for me when I choose to do so I really think that that's what it's all about I agree yeah, and that's freedom, right? It, that that's what we freedom. want. freedom, exactly. So I feel like so many people need to listen to this and to learn this because then there wouldn't be that emotional back and forth that so many of us go through when it comes to food. Yeah. So I'm curious, we're getting towards the last questions. Um, self-care is super important to me. And I've learned mm-hmm. recently that I re- recently wrote a post on this on Instagram that like self-care is and self-love is like happens in these like really extravagant moments like oh I'm gonna get this like $150 massage I'm gonna go get this manicure I'm gonna buy myself this like $100 bottle of wine or whatever and those things don't happen that often so my definition of self-care and self-love is something that like comes from me and that I cultivate every single day and I'm just curious amongst the super demanding job that you have And, you know, the busyness that all of us go through and the chaoticness of just everyday life. (laughs) It's true. Like, there's a lot of shit going on for for everyone. There's a lot (laughs) for us to handle. So amongst all of that, how do you find ways to take care of yourself and and cultivate that sense of self-love? You know, what I do for self-care is create boundaries. So good. Number one. uh, I my reaction, my initial reaction to my mom's diagnosis was to work mm. and then work some more and then work on top of that. And I just became honestly like your textbook workaholic. And I did not know that I had that potential in me until I sort of looked up one day and I was like, I am not healthy. Like I am not well right now yeah. because I'm avoiding everything that I need to do. And I'm avoiding it and using work as sort of like my escape. Um, And I did not create any boundaries around, you know, what was work and what was life. And it was difficult for me to do that anyways, because I really love what I do. Mm -hmm. Um, What I do, you know, is very similar to what I do when I'm not working. (laughs) Yep. So it was difficult for me to like even acknowledge that I was doing that to myself. Yeah. so like for me now, self-care is like creating boundaries, being explicit and honest about where those boundaries lie and then adhering to them mm-hmm. um, and really not negotiating them. I don't negotiate where I set up boundaries for myself personally and professionally um, because I don't do them as a form of protection. I do them as a form of preservation yes. and they are things that I do that help me thrive and become better when I go back to, you know, what's on the other side of the boundary. So, um, that's a huge one. And it, you know, it's manifested in little ways. Like I won't be a bit, like I won't answer emails after a certain time or, mm-hmm. you know, it's made a really concerted effort to not work on the weekends as frequently. Yeah. Um, those sorts of things. But then on top of that, you know, trying to remember, go back into my like self and my body and remember like 
what has made me feel good historically, what has made me feel good. And that has always been finding some sort of conversation with the natural world. Mm. Um, I spent two summers working in the Adirondacks, working at an environmental science camp, like leading, you know, overnight backpacking hikes and just living outside for like, you know, 10 weeks every summer, truly. And it was, you know, in those conversations with the landscape that I was in that I felt truly healthy. Um, and so, you know, this year was about reestablishing that conversation. And for me, self-care is going for a walk in the woods. Mm. That's like that, you know, yoga is as close as I'm ever going to get to some sort of religion. Um, but it's not self-care. That's what I do, you know, for a whole different reason, but, and really just making a choice of how am I going to take care of myself today? I have to go take a walk away from, uh, you know, like a, my current environment, which tends to be very urban and go somewhere where I'm away. And I'm very fortunate to live, you know, very close to like really beautiful nature preserves and the Adirondacks are right there. And I will get in a car for a mountain in a second. Oh my God. Me too. Except <laughs> so, I have to drive like 2000 miles. <laughs> yes, you do. Mm-hmm. Um, but also just like just being okay with prioritizing that and yeah. the act of prioritizing that and then making myself that promise that I would do that because I know I need it. And then keeping my promises to myself have yes. been the greatest expression of self care for me. And other than the gas that it costs to put, you know, make my car move, yeah. it's free. Exactly. Exactly. And that's so powerful because that lets you know that you're a person worthy of creating those boundaries, you know? And yeah. I feel like a lot of people struggle with that because they think that they're rude or mean or, or whatever. And that's something I've struggled with too as I've created my boundaries. But it's really the only way. Um, to preserve ourselves and to do the shit like that we need to do in the world. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, to, and to get, and to live, to get our work done and to create all of it into this life that we're living, you know? Yeah. And it's a reminder to the world that I own me yes. and my time and, you know, like what I give is, you know, something that we have, to, you know, to my work or to, you know, other opportunities or whatever those are like that's mutually agreed upon like I've decided to give that much of myself to this and you've decided that that's you know you that's what you wanted exactly but uh, that negotiation that reinforcement can only happen when like the boundaries that are initially set are held yes and and it creates a certain level of respect that people have for you because of them I agree and um and it makes other people do the same for themselves, yes, which is like, it's very like inspiring. Gift. Yeah. It's yeah. so inspiring. The gift of boundaries is other yeah. people create their own. I know. <laughs> so true. Gosh, I could talk to you forever for hours oh, about so yeah, many different things. Keep going. <laughs> um, I want to ask you a couple quick fire questions that I ask everyone. Okay. Um, the first one is books are a huge part of my life. I'm obsessed with reading So what are three books or three authors that have really had a huge impact on you? Um, Let's see. I am a huge fan of the poet uh, John O'Donohue. Um, He honestly has written work 
that has spoken to me on a soul cellular level. Mm. Uh, yeah, I would recommend, you know, checking out some of his stuff on beauty is one of his. And they're just sort of these like beautiful sort of elegies about like what it, what beauty really means and like how the world has sort of misconstrued that concept. I spend so much time thinking about beauty as a concept and he has been, um, his writing has been such a gift. He's like a soul friend for me. Mm, I love that. I, I love his work so much. Um, let's see. I tend to read a lot of nonfiction. So um, I recently have read this book called The Hidden Life of Trees. Oh, my gosh. I've heard uh, of it. It's very good. Um, Peter Wolalbin. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce his last name. Um, it's brilliant as an audiobook. Mm. Uh, it's very I mean, if you read it at night, you probably will fall asleep because it's very, very soothing. Uh-huh. But um, he sort of uh, tells us about how trees as an entity behave. Um, you know, you know, there's this like you know, people get worried that when we talk about trees or animals that we're, uh, you know, anthropomorphizing them. But I totally disagree with that argument. I think that there are elements and beings on this planet that are non-human persons and that have, you know, essences to them that like deserve respect. And for me, trees are, are one of those beings. And I just, um, I think that they hold so much like beautiful world history and I love learning about them. So that's a book that's really like made an impression on me recently. And let's see, what have I trying to think if there's I, here I am like a food editor and I'm like what have I about food? <laughs> I know because like, we're always thinking about books and writing and <laughs> really, stuff really spoken to me recently um huh if it's just two that's cool too you know yeah I think it might just be those two yeah. I'm sure like come to me but I I'm a I'm a person that rereads books over and mm. over and over okay. I have you know the book that I love and then that's the book that I read I, I'm I would say that it's not a book, but I read Seth Godin's daily emails. Oh, me too. Every day. Love him love so him. much. Oh my gosh. Uh, a friend gave me his, uh, one of his more recent books, um, Your Time Is Now, or some of the title yeah. similar. There's a woman on the cover. Yes. And I, I honestly, I read the first page and then just like break down in tears because it's just so emotionally satisfying to read that book. Oh, yes. Everything he writes, all of his books. It's like, I think that he's been my biggest influence probably. Yes. He's a gift. Seth yes. Godin is a gift. I Amazing. love his work. And what's your favorite fruit? <laughs> My favorite fruit? Oh, boy. I would say super tart green apples. Ooh. Yeah. Delicious. Oh, green apples, or I just uh, recently discovered this um, variety called um, Stamen Wine Sap apples. Ooh. I always love yeah. hearing about apples. Yeah, I mean, apples as a topic. Honestly, I went to graduate school to write about apples. (laughs) I Um, love it. That's what I wanted to write about. The iconography around apples is just Mm -hmm. like inch for me. But uh, yeah, I love, I like the sharper, the crunchier, the sour green apples or like Mm. these stamen wine saps are my favorite. Mm. I'm going to have to check those out. I don't know if I can get them here, but I'll definitely research them. Yes. What about veggie, your favorite veggie? I love me some broccoli. You know why? Oh it's gosh. so utilitarian. It is. You can do so I many like, things. If I can just have, if I have a bag of frozen broccoli in my freezer, I'm set. Yeah. The, yeah, yeah, totally. I love it. <laughs> it's just that simple. Yeah. 
Um, and okay, this is kind of a morbid question, but something I'm <laughs> super interested in for all people. Okay. If you're on death row, you get one meal. What would it be? Yeah. Ooh, that's a difficult question. Cause I have to know how I want to feel like right before. Yeah. <laughs> Probably would want to feel, um, calm and a sense of peace. Mm-hmm. Probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would probably say it would be a steak if I could cook it myself. Mm, very specific. Because, yeah, I, but I have to cook it myself because I find so much pleasure in cooking a steak on the stovetop. Yes. There's few better things than like a perfectly cooked mm. steak, like in a good, like an iron skillet. Yeah, exactly. Like Amazing. everything about it. It's so sensual, like the the sizzle, the smoke, like the smell. I mean, I think the point of the last meal is to feel as alive as you can before you die. Yes. And I I would need that like sensory overload, I think right before. So yeah, but I would have to cook it myself because I would need that tactile, you know, connection. Cause that's half of it too. In the enjoyment, you know? Okay. Last question. What's the greatest piece of advice and a loaded question too. Um, the greatest piece of advice you've ever received. Um, let's see. I think that it was someone giving me permission to feel the way I felt. Mm, So important. Yeah. And that message was shared with me by numerous really beautiful, helpful people in various ways. But overall, the, the kernel at the center was if you feel that way, then it's true. And just being believed and acknowledged and feeling the way I felt was enough. And I, it's sort of like just to bring it back full circle. It's like sometimes you just need to be witnessed in your feelings. You need somebody to hold space for you just yeah. to feel how you're feeling. And that acknowledgement is enough to move on to whatever comes next. 100%. That's also what it's about too. Just... Because once you know that, then you can carry on and just go give your gifts to the world. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So important. Because you were believed. There's nothing better than being believed. Exactly. I totally agree. And having somebody there for you to mirror those things back to you, few things are better. Yeah. And it teaches you how to be that person for yourself, which it's, was essentially the lesson. Yeah. Yes, totally. Finding the lessons and everything. Well, thank you so much. Like I said, I could talk to you forever. This is amazing. Amazing. And it went in a different direction <laughs> than I had planned, but I loved this conversation. Me and too. And I hope to have you back on at some point for sure. That would be really wonderful. Tell people where they can find you, um, maybe your Instagram handle, if you want yeah. them, you know, like if they can totally. find you in the kitchen, just where they can find you online. Yeah. So on a regular basis, you can uh, find me. I I think I do my most personal writing on my Instagram (laughs) with little captions Mm -hmm. at this point. Um, And so I'm at Hallie Bay, just H-A-L-I-B-E-Y. I do some essays over um, on my website, uh, HallieBayRamDean.com. And 
my sort of stalled art history blog where I do some writing about the intersection between art history and food is uh, dinnerwithpanofsky.com. Got a lot of URLs to share here. <laughs> and then, of, of course, you can find my work um, at The Kitchen, which is just thekitchen.com. And if you come over there, we're going to help you make dinner tonight. So um, any of those places, it would be great to see some some friends. Perfect. And yeah, it was such a good conversation. So many different things about growth and I know a lot of people are going to get a lot out of it. So thank you again for coming on. Thank you so much, Ashley. Thank you so much for listening to Heart Food Podcast. To find the show notes for this episode, please visit ashleypardo.com. Follow Ashley on Instagram at Ashley K. Pardo. If you like the show, please share it with your family and friends and give us some love by subscribing and giving us a five-star rating and review on iTunes.